everybody. This is Dr. Diana Wiley, your host of Love, Lust, and Laughter. I am so pleased because I have a returning guest, Dr. Jordan Tischler, medical doctor, MD. He's a cannabis specialist. And last year, this show, always on a Tuesday, fell on 420, the 20th of April. This year it's 419, but we're lucky to have Dr. Jordan Tischler back again. Dr. Tischler graduated from both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. And I also am joined by my co-host, Brian Brewer, also my husband. So we're going to have a great conversation. I think the focus of the show, we're going to use the New York Times article that, uh, that Dr. Tischler was quoted in uh, April 1st, no joking. And <laughs> the title was Cannabis for Better Sex. Well, here's what the science says. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tischler. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I can't believe it's been an, all, an entire year, but I guess we have the 420 to mark it out. Uh, we do, and do it, you know, but things are much better than last year, at least COVID-wise. And that's, oh, yeah. that's a real plus. Um, so where would you like to start? I, uh, Dr. Tischler, I, I had a... Um, I wanted to hear if, if you could perhaps look through the lens of your practice called Inhale MD through maybe and look at, um, give us some updates, uh, not only through your practice, but just in general, because um, we're, we're going to look at what the research says from the article and, and all of that, but give us some updates on the cannabis field. Sure. You know, I think things are kind of chugging along. There have been a number of developments over the last year, uh, particularly at the federal level, uh, wherein there have been a number of bills that have either been introduced or reintroduced. As you're probably aware, the House has passed the Moore Act for the third time. Um, the Senate has uh, talked about uh, introducing a similar sort of quote unquote, comprehensive cannabis reform bill uh, from uh, leader Schumer. Um, and then there have been some Republican uh, sponsored bills that have sort of tried to take slightly different tax on all of this. And I think that, you know, that's been fairly exciting insofar as the federal government has finally sort of taken up this discussion but the part of it that I find kind of challenging and disappointing is that a lot of the discussions such as there is in DC at this point is focused on either social justice issues around trying to uh, uh, cease the harassment of people of color around cannabis use in this country, which is of course a very important topic, um, or, and also of course business related stuff. But what's sadly lacking is there's absolutely no discussion about taking care of patients in any of these bills. Um, and what we've seen further is that in states like Oregon, California, and Colorado, where we've had the longest experience having recreational cannabis systems in place, is that patients are really getting quite shafted um, and, and not getting the care that they need. So I think that there's some exciting uh, action in DC, but you know what I've spent a whole lot of my life on is actually trying to 
hammer on those politicians and say, you know, this is all well and good and it's great, let's keep doing this. But first, let's talk about how are we taking care of patients? How are we making sure that people get the information and the care that they need so that they're getting the right cannabis products, they're getting safe cannabis products, and they're getting the expertise of clinicians to help guide them so that they're having good outcomes. And that unfortunately is still a conversation that's lacking. So I jump in here and also say yeah. that uh, there's a definite need for more research on the medical benefits of cannabis. No uh, question. I mean, I personally find that that is an interesting statement insofar as there are certainly people out there, many of them, my colleagues who say things like we need more research as a way of sidestepping the fact that that we can and should be taking care of patients with this medicine now. But I also think that it's inarguable that we always need more research and even fields as, as tried and true as cardi cardiology, uh, where there's lots and lots of data, there's still more to be learned. And it is heartening to see that there have been a number of bills that have advanced, uh, not to the point of being law, but at least are getting more attention that really do put the emphasis on, on funding and facilitating that kind of research, either uh, through NIH or through the Department of Veteran Affairs. How long do you think it'll be? What's your best guess about when this might really advance uh, the research? Uh, I suppose once the feds decide to uh, decriminalize it. Well, I think that one of the myths that's out there is if we legalize cannabis, then we will get all the research we want because there'll be no laws standing in the way. But what I've experienced as somebody who has been asked by, I don't know, dozens upon dozens of companies to come on an ad, as an advisor, and one of the reasons why I'm not an advisor to many of these companies, is that they... Um, don't really have the appetite for doing this research. So, you know, I often say, why do, do pharmaceutical companies do all of this research? And the answer is because they have to do it in order to get approval by the FDA. And without the FDA approval, they can't go to market. Um, companies come to me and they say, Dr. Tischler, we'd love to do some science here, you know, come and help us. And I say, well, that's great. You know, they say, how much is it going to cost? I say, well, you know, for starters, maybe about 10 million, probably about 50 million by the time we're done. And they, their eyes like light up and they say, oh, wow. Oh, we had no idea. And like, I said, well, science is difficult. Why do you think it takes so long and so much money to, to do science? It's because you want to write, you want to get to the right answer. Right. And, um, and that's not easy. And we're talking about, you know, doing research in human beings where we have a lot of safety protocols and we have to recruit them and bring them in and do whatever the study involves and then analyze that data and do it all in a way so that we don't make any mistakes. Um, and, and the bottom line is for a cannabis company who's looking at this proposition, they're saying to themselves, yeah, we'd like to do some science, but you know what? We can take this product and put it on the shelves and sell it without doing any science. Why are we gonna spend 50 million bucks, right? So if we go from prohibition to carte blanche legalization, my fear is we won't get any research done at all because everybody will be out there just making their products and selling their products. And then there's no need to do any homework. Uh, so I'm, you know, to your question, I think that it will be maybe another two years before we see really meaningful change at the federal level. And I actually am not super happy that it's that long, but it does give me the opportunity to continue to hammer on 
the issues around patient care, hopefully before these bills get signed into law. And of course, there are elections coming up. So everything I just said is subject to who knows what happens if you know the Senate goes to the Republicans, if the presidency goes to the Republicans. You know, it, it, I just don't know. It's pretty shocking what's happening in the GOP these days. <laughs> you know, it, and the funny thing is, so so I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that everyone will recognize that I'm I'm fairly left of center at, at baseline. But what's mm -hmm. been very interesting to me as becoming sort of an um, unwilling political operative is it's actually the more conservative states and their various representatives that I think are actually helpful to patients' causes because you know they're the ones saying, well, now, wait a minute, slow down. Let's get the data. Let's make sure that patients get the care they need. And then we can talk about recreational. Um, and uh, so I'm finding myself dealing with you know, people uh, whose political views are very different from my own because we happen to overlap on this, this particular issue. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, we did hear from Brian. And as I said at the top of the show, Brian is my husband and he knows a lot about cannabis. And, and uh, we have a chapter, a bonus chapter in, in my book, uh, Love in the Time of Corona, Cannabis for Couples. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that Brian is here. Brian, did you want to comment on anything that um, Dr. Tischler just said? Well, uh, I, 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 it's interesting to hear Dr. Tischler's perspective on the research and the patient area. I think he's spot yes. on about that. And hopefully we can, you know, in the meantime, I think you know, patients are getting uh, at least some help, right? Dr. Tischler, you, you treat patients in this area. And Absolutely. And so in, in, but relating to the specific topic for today is talking about the, how, how can cannabis uh, enhance a person's sex life, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so Diana mentioned the bonus chapter for her book, uh, it's called the bonus chapter is called cannabis for couples and it's 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 a short chapter it's a good summary of uh if you're interested in this topic of how you might approach uh, using cannabis in your sex life uh, diana of course is a sex therapist and contributed a lot to this and the chapter is uh, available free online as a free download at uh, deardrdiana.com and you just have to sign up for the email list and you can get the chapter for free. So it's deardrdiana.com and it's D-E-A-R-D-R-Diana.com. Yes, I just came from my uh, annual physical and my doctor is very enlightened. And we were talking about this show that we're now doing. And uh, he said, he's read, he's read my book and he, and he's a fairly young physician. And he and his wife do participate in cannabis. He actually gave me his personal email so that I could send him the chapter on cannabis for couples. <laughs> so a, a, a lot more physicians are coming around to cannabis, not only for its healing properties, but for its uh, recreational properties and, and also for dealing with stress and um, anxiety. Although he pointed out, my, my doctor pointed out that a lot of people are just taking cannabis kind of willy-nilly, 
for anxiety, but they there it's not they don't have any talk therapy to go with it. And sometimes that's not so good. It might be better than drinking yourself uh, comatose, but it's still not so good. No question about it. I think that, you know, anxiety is one of the most common complaints that leads people towards cannabis. But ironically, it's also one of the areas where cannabis can be most a double-edged sword. And the advice that is sort of uh, sort of commonly given and the kind of advice that one might get from, you know, the bud tender at the dispensary tends to actually be really um, wrong and uh, fly in the face of what we know scientifically. Uh, I often say, you know, if you ask our stoner friends, they will tell you that you wake up in the morning and if you're feeling anxious, you smoke up a big bowl and you just kind of keep smoking whenever you feel anxious. We actually know that that has the ability to backfire. It leads to higher dosing. It leads to tolerance and potentially to cannabis use disorder. But worst of all, it can actually provoke both anxiety and depression uh, in part by the daytime use and in part by these higher doses. And that what works really very well is much, much lower doses given once a day, typically around bedtime, where the intoxication aspect wears off overnight because it's not the intoxication that's what's helping with the anxiety. It's some other neurochemical trans, uh, uh, transformation uh, related to the ingestion of the THC and other cannabinoids. So you know, we often sort of mistake that being stoned feeling for what it is that's really helping with the anxiety. And that leads us to sort of misuse the cannabis in this way, when in fact, very small doses given at bedtime are actually much more effective and much safer. Fascinating. <laughs> We're learning so much from you, Dr. Tischler. We haven't even talked about sex yet. <laughs> oh, I know. And I can hardly wait. <laughs> I love to talk about sex. Go right ahead, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've had some really good success uh, suggesting cannabis to some of my couples. And um, not, not all of them, but some of the couples that I'm seeing. And uh, particularly, I've had some good success with, um, tell you about um, um, uh, my client, uh, we'll call her, Tamara, a 26-year-old woman. She had not ever reached orgasm with a partner. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, Dr. Tischler, that anorgasmia is never seen on a list for the medical use of marijuana. But... <laughs> no. And, and, and of course, glaucoma is on every one of them where we know that that's not a, a, a good use of cannabis. Yeah, so it's all very political. Oh, it, it, isn't that true? Yes. Now, um, I Natalie Angier, she uh, is, was a, a public, a Pulitzer Prize author of Woman and Intimate Geography. And she wrote that in 1999. And I, I, this is quoting her, all the women in my immediate family learned how to climax by smoking grass. My mother, when she was over 30 and already the mother of four. So my client had a head start at 26. Mm -hmm. But she, but her, it was really clear in our sessions that her sense of safety in her relationship was really compromised so much so that she had difficulty living uh, in that place that would be open to letting go in her sexuality. She needed to let go and really cannabis helped her so much. 
And um, and so that it, this is a happy ending story <laughs> because <laughs> she and her fiance would get high together and she was able to truly let go for the first time. And her inhibitions were relaxed. Mm -hmm. And she experienced all the beautiful sensual sensations. So this is just one ex clinical example, but I have a number of them. But let's let's talk about that because we didn't part of that was part of that was telling them to start low and go slow so she didn't get too much. Absolutely. But, yeah. And and have you had experience with your patients and increasing orgasms with the ingestion of cannabis? Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah. you know, one of the things that's really interesting about cannabis is um, that it, it can be helpful for a range of problems and it can be helpful for, um, you know, uh, all of the genders that are involved. Um, so, you know, when we think about what our options are, um, you know, in, in this conventional medical world, we're pretty limited, right? I mean, we've got the Viagra type medications that help men with one problem, very specifically erectile dysfunction, but men have many other issues around desire and orgasm and satisfaction that those medicines don't touch in the least. And then for, uh, for women, there are really no medicines at all that are helpful. I mean, there are, there's one that's, that's FDA approved, but it's not very effective. Um, I know about that one. It's not effective. And men have about 26 FDA approved medications for, uh, for, at least about, uh, for male <laughs> sexual dysfunction. But, you know, the bottom line is here, it isn't, at least as, in the way I think about this, is it, it's not really uh, a competition. What we need is ultimately to get something that works appropriately to address the problems that people have. And, uh, and the good news, as you said, is that cannabis is available and, it, and it's effective and it's safe. Um, so, yeah, I have a whole range of, of, of men and women uh, who I've treated over the years, and it can be very helpful. I, I think there's a bit of a process that I that I employ that has you know I've developed over the years that sort of uh, best practices for getting there safely. Um, you mentioned the start low and go slow mantra, which I think is um, a, a, a great thing. It's sort of inarguable. What I found is that it's also not quite enough um, because what is low, what is slow, what is the upper range? When do I stop? You know, when do I call for help? You know, and advice, um, that sort of thing. So I tend to be fairly more specific with my patients in, in the service of trying to get them kind of to the right answer uh, quicker and and more safely. One of the things is that, you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can use cannabis um, and in, and certainly edibles and such like that have become uh, kind of a, a, the popular darling of the moment. I actually don't recommend those for sexuality because, as you know, and many of your listeners know, they're really slow to work and they're very unpredictable which is fine if we're talking about something like chronic pain where they're actually a better choice. But if we wanna get everybody revved up for sexual activity at the same moment, then, uh, then the edibles can be kind of uh, challenging. 
Um, I also don't tend to recommend that people smoke ca cannabis because smoking cannabis isn't real good for your lungs. I do recommend that people vaporize cannabis flour, not cannabis oils, because that's also not very healthy. Um, but vaporizing cannabis flour can be very safe and very effective. And it's a really, uh, uh, it's, it's quick onset. So it means that it's easy for it to be worked into the foreplay in a, in a coupled or partnered situation. Um, and it's a good way to get everybody going kind of at the same time. You, uh, you're quoted in this New York Times article, um, and you say here, uh, you recommend trying cannabis alone for the mm. first few times and masturbating in order to understand what it does to the body and the sensations. Could you expand Absolutely. That? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it, for many people who would be interested in cannabis for these issues, there's a lot riding. But then there's all sorts of issues, uh, as you'd said about your patient, you know, she made it to 26 and she had never been able to orgasm because she couldn't relax enough to, to um, let go and participate in a, in a joyful manner. Um, so, you know, people come to this oftentimes not from a place of strength, but from a place of hurting and, and we need to get them uh, into a safe space. And so, one, trying to take on a new medication in the midst of sort of a vigorous and uncertain activity with a partner who may or may not be, you know, somebody that they're very close to, that's just too many variables. It's a setup for things to go sideways. So a nice, quiet environment by yourself, set the mood, put on the, the playlist, dim the lights, maybe light the candles, you know what I'm saying? all the yeah. things that, that point us towards a, a positive outcome. And then you try cannabis, you start to get a sensation, you know, the, the experience of what it's like to be on this medicine. And then you can start to explore your body and really start to understand how it's going to help. And after you've gone through that a few times, then you're probably feeling confident enough that you can bring it up with your partner and talk about it and make sure that we all have consent and then we can start to talk about actually doing this together and in the bedroom. I like your idea of starting alone. And I suggest the same thing to my anorgasmic patients that they masturbate alone. Uh, and if they've never tried a sex toy, uh, definitely try some sex toys. But when you're alone, you, you can really focus in on all of the sensations and um, it's it it and then if the woman can reach orgasm alone with masturbation, she's much better prepared to share that with her partner. And hopefully, her partner is open to this. Otherwise, it's not as likely to happen that she can relax enough and 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 let go enough in order to have an orgasm. Uh, but yeah, doing it alone first helps. You know, a little side story that fits into this is. I found for guys that watch a lot of porn and masturbate uh, and then later experience erectile dysfunction with their partners, uh, what turns out, it turns out that when they're masturbating, they don't, and looking at the screen with the porn actresses, they don't have to worry about pleasing a partner. This is also true for the premature ejaculating guys. They don't have to worry about pleasing a partner so they can just be with themselves, treat themselves, masturbate. Yeah, it's pure fantasy. 
Pure, exactly, pure fantasy. It's me time. It's not us time. It's me time. Me time is good. Me time, me time is, is good. good. Yeah. Really it's good. just not good to be doing me time when it's us time, you know? That's right. <laughs> well, perhaps most of the time, right? <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Uh, but one other point about, about the uh, method of ingestion, there are also uh, sublingual tinctures. What's your opinion about those? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. So there were a couple of things. I ended up feeling very lukewarm about that New York Times article. Um, oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I mean, which, and it's nice that everybody else has reacted very positively to it. That was, that was nice for me because I had felt kind of not entirely positive about it. Um, you know, they, they, I'm always unhappy when they quote uh, people who have, you know, a product to sell. So that was one thing I was unhappy with. And then um, my colleague and friend, Becky Lynn, had mentioned tinctures. Um, and I, 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 my, my experience with tinctures is pretty, um, well, shall we say less than stellar. I think that they're very popular for reasons. I think that, you know, that, that I have trouble understanding. I think people like the idea of putting stuff under their tongue. But what we know is that there is very little, if any, absorption of those tinctures under the tongue. And that what really happens is you get a, a, a Pavlovian placebo type thing. I put something under my tongue. I should expect to feel something. Oh, I feel something. Uh, but that's more about expectation than about biology. When we swallow the tincture, then it gets absorbed in the gut, but the absorption then is kind of more or less just the same as if we had taken a gummy. And frankly, with my patients, I worry mostly about tinctures because they're liquids and it's very easy then to get the dose wrong, particularly if you're dropping it right into your mouth to get it under your tongue. So I, you know, when it comes to uh, orally ingested things, I actually prefer little gummies because either you took it or you didn't take it. It's not like how much did you take? And when it comes to the sexuality issue, as I had mentioned, I, I think that the inhalation is, is, uh, is more successful in that way. Mm -hmm. You do. It's interesting that you, you weren't that thrilled with the New York times article, but I do like what you suggest here uh, toward the end of it. You say um, that you advise your clients to start with five milligrams of THC taking one puff on a cannabis flower vaporizer before having a sexual experience. And, that, and um, so would you talk a little bit more about taking one puff and the inhalation is important. You, you talk about that too in the New York Times article. Absolutely. Let me just, uh, as, a, as a side note, say that my, my primary uh, unhappiness, if you will, with yeah. that article was not yeah. so much uh, what they quoted me as saying or what they got from other people. But there was, there, there was sort of a tone that was like, well, people can try this, but there's really not a lot of data behind it. And, you know, there's certainly less data behind uh, cannabis and sexuality, seeing as that it's the intersection of two taboo and fairly underfunded areas of study. There's no question. But it sort of came out sounding a little like, well, we don't know what we're doing, but you could try it anyway. And that I wasn't super happy about. That all being said, um, if you have a vaporizer machine and you put cannabis into it that has between 15 and 20% THC, and you take a puff on that machine 
which is sort of defined in my universe as being a full deep breath. And the reason for the full deep breath is because you can't put more in than full, right? So if you take a full breath, then we know you're getting a certain amount and you're always getting the same amount. And it turns out that when you do the math, that that works out to about five milligrams in one puff of the THC. And so that's just a really good way for us to be able to measure uh, by, you know, what's going on by inhalation. So we can say, look, you know, one puff didn't work. So we'll go to two. Now we know we're at 10 milligrams. That's an average kind of dose. Uh, so we're still within the safety margins. Um, and, you know, and if somebody comes back to me and said, I took two puffs and they didn't follow my my protocol, then I have no idea how much they got. So it's very hard for me to say, all right, well, the next step would be, whereas if they come back and say, look, I took the two puffs, I did it the way you explained it to, we know that I got 10 milligrams and this is what happened, then we can start to talk more precisely about what would be next. So Dr. Tischler, you just mentioned that uh, one or two puffs, five or 10 milligrams is still within, you said, I think you said the safety area. Right. Uh, what, what, how, what's outside those bounds and what are the uh, consequences of, of doing that? Uh, okay. Um, so first of all, there are, there are sort of two levels of answer to that. One is just kind of the pure medical answer. And then the other one is the one related to sexuality. Um, I would say that most of my patients fall within a range between five and 20 milligrams. Um, I have a few patients who are doing really well on even less, like two and a half milligrams. And I do have a small smattering of patients who are in this sort of 20 to 30 milligram range. But the vast majority, 90 something, you know, two standard deviations uh, are between five and 20. And, uh, and that works really well. And what's really interesting about that is it also doesn't seem to generate a whole lot of, of tolerance. Right. And tolerance is what we want to avoid. Oftentimes in the cannabis community, people talk about tolerance like it's a badge of courage. But in reality, what happens when we incur tolerance is that we're actually flooding the system, our brain systems, with so much THC that what happens is the cells are overwhelmed and they reduce the number of receptors that they put on the outside of the cells. I always think of them, I think of them as, you know, those little satellite dishes that people mount on the side of their houses so they can get satellite TV. Yeah. I think of those receptors as a whole bunch of those little satellite dishes. And they're there to hear the internal signaling from this, that cell's neighboring cells, right? That's what the endocannabinoid system is doing. But if we flood it, with a lot of THC from this plant, then it's like we're screaming at that cell and the cell goes, oh, I can't hear, you know? So it starts mm -hmm. taking down some of those dishes, which is great because now it doesn't hear too much THC, but now it can't hear the internal signaling. And so you become dependent on that THC. And if you stop the THC, you can have withdrawal. You can have irritability and insomnia and, and those sorts of things. And if we get into enough of a pickle 
we can develop cannabis use disorder, which as you know, is sort of a set of behavioral changes around the use of the substance that are harmful to people's lives. And that's really what we want to avoid at, at, at pretty much all costs. And that's just about how much are we using it and how often are we using it? Uh, so that was the medical answer. And then the sexual side of things is, um, is that cannabis when used uh, sort of immediately for sexual purposes can be helpful, but if we get too much, it can be harmful, right? And so the classic example is in, in males, you can get erectile dysfunction. In fact, it has a funny name. People talk about stoner boner. Stoner um, boner. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I didn't make that I'm up. I'm going to add that <laughs> to my vocabulary, I guess. Stoner and, boner. And so, you know, so what, it, what it's saying is really that if you, I don't think people realize, but the getting and maintaining of an erection is an active process, right? Some part of the male's brain has to continually be focused on getting it up and keeping it up. And if you're far enough out in la la land from being too stoned, you just lose focus and then and things wilt. Um, and so with males, we have to be very particular about the dose and keep it within that range. Women, um, have a little bit more leeway because frankly speaking, in certain circumstances, they can be more of a passive partner, uh, certainly not in all circumstances, but if they get too much cannabis, they may be a little bit more out of it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be uncomfortable or not able to participate in sex. Although if they really get too much, then you get all those classic stories about feeling, you know, dissociated and paranoid and all that stuff. And again, we want to avoid all of that. Um, so dosing is really important. It's a little bit uh, less critical for females, but still important. And with men, it's really very important. Otherwise we end up, you know, um, really undermining their sexual experience at the time. This is fascinating. I, I haven't really heard or read about, about some of these medical aspects and um, thank you for enlightening us. Were you enlightened at all by that, Brian? Or did oh, you- absolutely, it's fascinating. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Yeah, I'm thinking that for listeners that, you know, this, this might be some new information that uh, is Dr. Tischler, are there any other sort of, uh, sort of basics that you would mention for anyone who wants to try to uh, uh, delve into this? Yeah, I think one of the other things that I would mention, <clears throat> because this, you know, you guys know this, the cannabis industry is full of a lot of smoke and mirrors, right? There's all kinds of misinformation out there. That's and, a great metaphor for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that comes up a lot, like reporters will come and ask this question. They say, well, doctor, what are the strains that are good for sex? And this, this buys into this kind of marketing hype. It turns out that strains are really not relevant. Yeah. Um, there are thousands upon thousands of them, and, and this industry would like us to believe that each one of these strains is unique. And so the quest for the Holy Grail involves buying and trying as many as you can so that you'll find the one that's sort of magically suited for your body chemistry. And that's, a, that's great for the sales uh, flow for, for the dispensary. But really, when we're thinking about this from a clinical point of view, there's really no evidence that any of these differences amount to any changes in outcome. 
And in my clinic, in my practice, what I can tell you is that it's far more important to get the dose and the timing right. And then, you know, some people say, well, yeah, I prefer this one or I prefer that one. Like, okay, fine. You know, you're, you're welcome to prefer things, but that's different from, you know, do I need to get this thing specifically for this purpose, say sexuality? And the answer is no, it really doesn't matter. And all the things that get said about various strains or indicas versus sativa, it's all marketing hype. Um, so we, we need to kind of get that off the table. I, I would agree. That, that would, hopefully that will take a hold in the industry, but it's hard to say. So like you say, it's all about stimulating sales. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, what will happen, you know, I hope anyway, is that as more of the research that you mentioned gets done, we can start to be a little bit more specific about not the type of cannabis, but really the chemicals that are in it. Um, you know, people talk about minor cannabinoids, CBD, CBN, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they talk about terpenes. And it's funny because I just did uh, a review of all of the minor cannabinoids and the terpenes for courses that I've put together for the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. And what's really interesting is there's all manner of really interesting and inspiring data on all of these chemicals, except that none of it has ever been done in intact human beings, right? So it's all done in a mouse or a test tube or, or, or something to that effect. So it's very interesting and it's the beginnings of this groundwork, but we just don't have enough information to be able to say, okay, you need five milligrams of THC along with one milligram of CBD and half a milligram of myrcene and you know two milligrams of limonene. We're just not there yet. We'll get there. And when we do, then we're going to be in much better shape. However, I also think that that's gonna to lead to pharmaceuticals, right? That right. is to say, once we get to the point where we want to and can be that specific about the constituent parts, we're not gonna get that from smoking a bowl, right? We're gonna to have to get that from something where the, the various chemicals were recombined in the appropriate ratios or, or, or amounts um, and then put to us in some sort of a vehicle so we can take it. And I think that's very exciting. I think that the next, five to 10 years is uh, gonna be really exciting in that way. So is there any of this evidence, uh, or say more about the evidence about the effect of these other uh, endocannabinoids and terpenes that are in the cannabis? Um, you know, it's interesting. So one of the terpenes that everybody likes to talk about, I think just because the name is intriguing, is limonene, right? People like to talk about limonene. I think it's just like we're talking about lemons or whatever. I don't know. Well, um, there, are many, it, there are many strains that have uh, citrus uh, names in them. That, that, absolutely right. Although, frankly, I don't know which is responsible for the diesel strains. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, some always been impressed. Yeah, exactly. That, 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 that doesn't seem like a sales point to me, but <laughs> lots of people love them. Um, you know, so people talk about limonene as being activating and good for depression and stuff like that. Just no data on that at all. But it turns out that there are, there are data for limonene as being an anti-neoplastic agent. And that, um, mean? that means it uh, kills cancer. <laughs> Um, oh, wow. you know, 
but it's not super water soluble. It doesn't necessarily get into the body where we want it to get to. So there's, there's, there's research out there, but it's got to go the next step. Uh, linalool, people talk about how it's calming. Turns out that linalool is a really great medium to help other chemicals, maybe from cannabis, maybe not from cannabis, to get into the body where it needs to go. So that there is discussion about in this literature about combining linalool with, say, limonene or borneol or eucalyptol to help those other chemicals penetrate the body tissues to do what it is that we hope that they will do. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. But what we really need, number one, is to get the research done in human beings. And then we need to start to figure out from there, you know, how do we make this into a cocktail that has specific and, and uh, effective outcomes? And that's still very up in the air, but it, it's not like this research isn't ongoing. I had the um, pleasure of hosting a symposium earlier this year in which we had a group who had developed a new search engine and they were talking about their search engine. It's called Canakees 360. If anybody's interested, I think it's a wonderful tool. But what it is, is it's a search engine for the medical literature specifically related to cannabis and cannabinoids. And so you can go into their search engine and you can find all, you know, you can search by a problem, say Crohn's disease, or you can search by a cannabinoid like Mersine, uh, no, sorry, that's not a cannabinoid, um, like uh, THCA or a terpene like Mersine. And you can pull up all of that literature so that you can read it. It also has a nice dashboard that tells you, you know, how much of this was done in mice versus how much is in human beings. And all of this is backstory is leading up to the point I wanted to make, which is that what floored me from learning about this is the single largest producer of cannabis-related research is, drumroll please, drum the roll. United States. The United States. Yes. You know, everyone says, oh, we're not doing any research, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? We're doing the research. It's just, it, it's hard to do. We could do more. We could do better if the regulations were easier to work with, but we're still putting out you know, three to five times more research than our nearest uh, um, competitor, if you will, you know, uh, places like Canada and Israel and Spain, who are doing a lot of research, but we still are putting out the most. So I think, you know, we've got to get there. We've got to push forward, get those regulations so that they are uh, easier to deal with, but that, that the groundwork that, that people aren't aware is being done is in fact being done. And that's good news. Is, is that part of your uh, mission behind the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Um, I was wanted to talk a little bit about the Association of Cannabinoid oh. Specialists. And yes, sounds like part of the, re the mission there is to make this, even the current research more available and widespread to people. Absolutely. So our mission really is kind of twofold. It's education and advocacy. Wow. Um, and so in, just within the education part of the mission, uh, we think about sort of two different groups of people. There are docs like myself who 
are cannabis specialists who, you know, are taking care of patients using this plant material and, and this medicines that we can derive from it. Um, and then there are the other docs who are like, you know, our regular docs, uh, primary care, neurology, et cetera, who aren't going to do what I do, but they need to know enough about it to understand that it's legitimate and to figure out which of their patients would benefit enough to then refer them to somebody like myself. And I spend a lot of time talking to my doctor colleagues about just that. This is what we know. This is what it can do. This is when you want to send somebody to me. These are the problems we want to avoid. Uh, those sorts of things. So a lot of the educational efforts through the association are just that kind of thing. And making this tool available to members, they get a discount on, on the subscription, et cetera, uh, is another way that we can help them dive into this literature and make sense of this literature in a uh, faster and less arduous manner. You know, when I started doing this over 10 years ago, None of this stuff existed, meaning none of these tools, right? I could go to PubMed and you could put the word cannabis into that search engine. And at that time, long ago, you would only get 25,000 studies. So I sat down and I said, how am I going to make sense out of 25,000 studies? And it took me years to, to make sense of it. Um, and, and that's sort of what it took back then. So part of the mission is to make it comprehensible in, in shorter order so that we're not saying, well, sure, you could do this, but it's going to take you three years of, you know, reading 35,000 studies, which is what we have now. 35,000. Yeah, it was 25,000 10 years ago. <laughs> it's 35,000 now. But you're such a pioneer in this field. I mean, or, or an idiot. I don't know which. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're contributing so much. And you're Thank so you. sort of um, pragmatic as well as um, inspirational. I mean, I think you you have you're a you're a positive person. You you have faith that this is this is going to go forward in some some very positive ways and help more people. Well, that's what it's about, yeah. right? I it mean. Is. For People come to me and they say, how can you be pro-cannabis, you know, or how can you be anti-cannabis or anti-CBD? And I said, I'm not pro-cannabis. I'm not anti-cannabis. I'm not pro or anti-CBD. I just want to help my patients. You know, I am pro-patient. So if this works, I'm all for it. If it's baloney, I'm not so much for it, you know? That's the right attitude. Um, last, last year, we talked a little bit about PTSD and you, you mm -hmm. have, you talked about some of the vets in your practice whose lives have just been upended. And now we've got a war, of course, with Russia going against um, Ukraine. Ukraine. And um, so could you talk about P P PTSD and maybe some updates on that and uh, how, well, last time you talked about how, how cannabis can suppress some of the memory function with the negative reactions, but I think it, we should have another discussion about that. Yeah, you know, that is a, that's a very interesting topic. I don't know that we've seen a whole lot of research come out in the last year that, that you know, to update you with. Um, but I will say that amongst my patient population, whether the PTSD is from, you know, their experience as a veteran or being, um, you know, physically assaulted or sexually assaulted, um, 
cannabis seems to be a very helpful agent with a big but, sorry. But the problem is that you can easily overdo it. Mm. And so maintaining, you know, the, these are some, some of the studies uh, from the last five to seven years in veterans show that yes, we can treat this PTSD successfully if we're careful, but that most veterans, because that's the population that gets studied most, most yes. veterans get their cannabis advice, not from their doctor, but from their buddies, and they get the advice, just smoke a lot of weed, and then they go from sort of nothing to way too much very quickly and mm -hmm. sort of develop a different set of problems. Uh, so it's, it's another area, sort of like the sexuality, where you know, the dosing and timing uh, is really important. And the idea that less is more, which is a very medical attitude, uh, really needs to prevail to prevent uh, you know, solving one problem and creating another. Exactly right. In the time that we have left, let's also talk about cannabis and alcohol. We did last time, but that's such an important discussion. Um, how how the two compare? Because, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, you know, look, I don't want to come down uh, as overly negative on people's um, desire to enjoy responsible drinking. Uh, I I have no issues with it, but I think we have to acknowledge the fact that there is a uh, you know, there, there are folks for whom alcohol plays a much more destructive and negative role. Oftentimes, these are veterans who have PTSD, et cetera, who then use alcohol excessively for self-medication. Um, and we know that alcohol can be very um, toxic if it's misused, right? It, it has a dependence rate, which is roughly twice that of cannabis. Um, and it also has direct toxicity to basically every organ system that you can think of. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's suppressive to bone marrow. It's certainly bad for your liver. It's not great for your GI tract. It can harm your heart. Uh, and of course, it's not so great for your brain. So, you know, again, moderation is lovely, uh, but excessive use of alcohol is particularly harmful. Uh, cannabis, it seems, is uh, a, a lesser risk. Uh, you certainly can't smoke yourself to death in the same way that you can drink yourself to death. Um, but also the risk of, of dependence is, is much lower, as I mentioned. It's interesting and important for us to remember that cannabis and alcohol can interact. Um, so that by adding alcohol on top of cannabis use, we can increase the circulating blood THC level by eight times, um, which is not so much uh, important in terms of saying yes, cannabis or no cannabis or yes, alcohol, no alcohol, but rather just that, you know, in a medical context is probably a good idea not to mix them. Um, and in a recreational context, it's wise to mix them very gently until you kind of know where the, your limits are. Right. Very good. So before we go, we only have a few minutes left. Um, I'd like to just give listeners uh, a little bit of information about how they could reach you. Your uh, website, uh, you're based in Boston, is that correct? I'm based in Boston, but I have, thanks to our lovely pandemic, really been doing 
uh, almost exclusively telemedicine. And the good news is that that's really allowed me to help people, you know, all over the world at this point. So nobody should look at the fact that I'm based in Boston and say, oh, well, I'd love to see him, but, but you know, the reality here is, is that we can see you wherever and more or less whenever. Right. And your website is uh, inhalemd.com. Is that correct? That's right, inhalemd.com. And the other thing I would point out to your listeners is that I have a blog on the website, and we've now got over 200 articles on various topics related to cannabis and, and medical treatment. Uh, and it's searchable, so you can go in there, and if you're interested in learning how to make a THCA tincture, you can put THCA in there. If you want to learn about uh, cannabis for treatment of anxiety, you can throw the word anxiety in there. You can always throw the word sex or sexuality in there, and you're just going to get a whole bunch of articles that were written by me uh, in a sort of an attempt to be accessible and down to earth for everyone. So it's a really good place to start. I just, I, if I could just interject, I mean, that describes you, Dr. Tischler, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so fascinating. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. So for any clinicians who might be listening to this or any readers who want to mention this to their clinicians, you have the, uh, the ACS, the, that's right. So the, it's called the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. And, you know, you mentioned something there that I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, if, if doctors are not talking to their patients about cannabinoid medicine just yet, and we're working on that, it's absolutely fair game to push that a little bit by talking to your doctors about it. And I think a lot of people have the expectation that the doctors will tisk tisk and, oh, that's not real medicine. And you know what? Sure, there are some of them, but I have to tell you, tell you, I've been traveling all around this country and the world talking to my doctor colleagues, and nine out of ten of them, at least, are interested and open-minded. They may not know a whole lot about it, but that's okay because your job, if you're going to talk to them, is to not expect them to give you a lot of advice, but rather to point them, as you were saying, to the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists, so people can. Uh, reach the association by going to canaspecialist.org. That's canaspecialists.org. And of course, you can email that to your docs and say, hey, check it out. Right. Oh. And so, so clinicians can join this and have access to the research and the advocacy materials, right? Absolutely. And for, for clinicians, you know, not necessarily even limited to doctors, of course, but, you know, pharmacists and nurse practitioners and everybody, um, there's all oh, there. We have videos and courses and we have a, a curated library, all sorts of stuff to really make it easy for clinicians to uh, get their toe in the water, but then also to go deeper uh, into the process so that they can feel confident about interacting with patients and giving good advice and knowing that that advice is based on science and and best practices gleaned from from clinical experience it also it also looks like on the site that a user could search your clinician database and find a provider that they want to do yes yes i forget about that feature uh but yes people uh you know, non-physicians can go to that website and can see if they can find a specialist in their neck of the woods, which is a great thing. And the thing that they can know is that those people who are listed are members. And the members in becoming members, 
if they're a clinical person, uh, have agreed to a certain pledge. And you can read the pledge on the website. And it basically says things that I always thought were no brainers and wouldn't need to be reiterated. But it's things like, I'm going to take care of my patient. I'm going to spend time with my patients. I'm going to be available to my patients. You know, basic stuff like that, that we think of as kind of normal in the field of medicine. Somehow we kind of got away from that a little bit in this cannabis field. And, you know, so all of the providers that you might find through the uh, association have all kind of agreed that it's time that we take care of our patients. Well, great. I, uh, that's the wonderful resource. Um, I can't become a member though, as a sex therapist, can I? Sure you can. We don't, oh, we don't turn anybody away. Oh, um, good. <laughs> the only, the only thing join. that we have a student membership uh, for people, you know, at the graduate student level. Um, yeah. And then we have regular membership. And the only thing about the regular members is if you are a cannabis prescriber or recommender, then there's an extra little step there. And that's how you end up on that list. But otherwise, anybody can join uh, and participate. Wonderful. This has been such an enlightening discussion, Dr. Tischler. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Always good to talk to you and get, get all this good information. And no oh, My pleasure. It's really lovely to be on with you guys. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you to Brian for co-hosting with me today because sure. you asked such important questions and I, I appreciate that. And um, so tomorrow is the official 420 day. So everybody have a happy 420. And, and uh, I'm going to suggest that uh, my some of my patients listen to this show. I mean, there are a lot of people who could benefit from it. It will be archived by tomorrow, not only on my website, but on Progressive Radio Network's website. My website is drdianawiley.com and Progressive Radio Network is PRNFM, is it, Brian? <laughs> FM, yes. Yeah, PRNFM, yes. So uh, people will want to listen to uh, the show. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Uh, I hope we can count on you for next year, Dr. Tischler. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And if you want to circle back between now and then, feel, please feel free. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's, that makes my day. Um, cool. I mean, both Brian and I have heard things from you that we've never heard before about the real science and the medical aspects. And it's been fascinating. So again, many thanks, many thanks. And uh, happy, happy 420 to everybody. Yeah. Happy 420 to everybody tomorrow. All right. Bye-bye now. Hey, Take care. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Cosa leggerai? Che libro affascini il tuo cuore e se ti perderai.